0: We kick off our missions emphasis week today, and so that's why I'm here. Um, it's a mission field over there. Um, well, it is, but Pastor Audrey wanted me to speak on behalf of missions because I have a little bit of missions experience. and He thought, wouldn't it be great if you just shared a couple of your missionary stories as we kick off this week of missions emphasis? Um, as we all know, missions is super important. And so I just want to share a little bit of uh, my missions experience with you guys and try to try to clump it all together into some logical um, form of, of communication so that we all leave blessed and uh, a little better than we came in. And in order to do that, you don't need me or my notes. We need Jesus. So let's just pray that we all hear him because he's the one we need to hear. Father God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come before you in your house And we thank you that in your house, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is everything we need. And so, God, we just yield our bodies to you as living and holy sacrifices. Uh, This is our reasonable and spiritual act of worship. We pray that you would renew our mind, help us not to conform any more to the ways and the patterns of this world. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw from the living waters within me to bring out Words of wisdom, words of life that we could all grow from, because ultimately it all comes from you. So, Father, we we look to you, we listen for you, we lean into you this morning, and we pray that you would give us the ability to see what you see and hear what you want us to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So Kicking off missions, uh, we're going to look at the Great Commission. We all know that, but we're going to take a look at it. I'm going to break it down. There's three parts, and we're going to talk about one of those parts. But in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, the Great Commission in this context has three parts. The task, the objective, and the scope. The scope is the world. Go into all the world. The objective is to preach the gospel, make disciples, train people up so they can follow Jesus. The task is go. And the task is the only thing you need to be concerned about. Because the gospel's already been written. We don't have to figure that out. We just have to say it. The nations, we just jump on a plane or walk next door. They're there. The hard part, the most important part, is the go. And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the going. The going is difficult in our culture for for a few reasons. Not as a, as a missionary, and I'll, I'll get to some of my, my story a little later, but I'm real familiar with my culture as an American. And one of the ways that I'm real familiar with it is because it's, I've seen other cultures, and they're not like us, they're different. And when you walk into a room of different people, you begin to realize something about yourself. You begin to see, oh, okay, I, okay this is unique to me. And so in our culture, the going is difficult for a few reasons. It's different, different because, well, we don't like to really admit this, but we're all in, influenced by trends and what's what's trending, what's going viral. We're all influenced by that, whether we think it or not. Culture has an effect on us. For example, my wife and I picked out a color to paint our house, and we didn't go to Instagram, we didn't go to a website, we went to Lowe's, and we stood in front of that thing with a million colors on it, and out of those million colors, we're like, that one, we like that one, well, she liked that one, so we went with that one. (laughs) So we paint our house, it looks good, our furniture contrasts nicely with it, the way the sun comes to the windows, it's just the perfect color for our house. Well, a few months ago, we were talking with some friends of ours, and um, turns out the color they painted their house is called agreeable gray, which is the exact same color we picked. It's your color? Yep. Agreeable gray. Is <laughs> in your house? I didn't know that. I thought I was unique. I thought I liked that color because I'm special and I have a good sense of color. But turns out, other people liked it. Turns out, it's one of the most popular colors out there right now. Everybody's... If you have gray in your house, raise your hand. See, that's culture. I didn't know, but somehow I knew. Like my friend Chris says often, he said... I, I don't know if you say this often, but I remember it often, that a fish doesn't know it's wet. Because that's just him. He's just always wet. He doesn't know anything else. He's just wet, but he doesn't call it wet. And in the same way, culture affects us. And so that makes going difficult because in our culture, we like to be in control. We like to stay comfortable. We like to plan things out. We like to plan things out because we want to be successful. And if we're not careful, those cultural desires, those cultural bents keep us from going. I remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor already talked about, um, I guess it was a survey or something, and he said they figured out, I don't know who they are, but they're pretty smart, I guess. Um, Two percent of the church is making disciples, which implies there's 98% of us not making disciples. And I think some of the main culprits are our cultural tendencies. We like to be in control. We like to plan. We like to be comfortable. We like to be successful. And if we can't figure all that out, never mind. I I can't. I'm out. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go to where I can figure it out. So this morning, I want to talk about what life on mission looks like from some of my personal experiences on the mission field. Um, Back in 2005, my wife and I um, decided to go to college, and well, finish college. And I have a degree in business. My wife has a degree in education. We don't never plan to start a business or be teachers. We just did that because those two degrees opened doors on the mission field, and so. We're in school, my wife is in class, and this guy from Swaziland, Africa comes and talks about, the. this was the first time I heard the word pandemic. He talked about the pandemic of HIV AIDS in Swaziland, Africa. Generations of people were passing away, leaving young generations parentless. And it was a, it was a big deal. The UN said, If nothing's done or nothing drastically changes, the nation of Swaziland could be extinct. So this ministry showed up at Southeastern Campus and talked about the things that they're doing to help the vulnerable and orphaned children of HIV AIDS. And then they invited people to come. And then my wife comes home and tells me where I'm going. And when your wife tells you where to go, you go. So I got on a plane, went to Swaziland, Africa, and I saw the need firsthand. And I saw how we could, could jump in and be of help, be of benefit. And so that's what we did. We spent two years in Swaziland, Africa, and we also went to Zambia and worked, partnered with Overland Missions. And we did the going. But when I look back, as I think about all the things that we did on the mission field, I know we did a lot of great things. But when I look back, it's not the events that I remember. It's not, it's not the food that we delivered. It's not, it's not the, the orphan homes that we created and established. It's not the mission tr- teams that we, we, we hosted. What I remember most about our mission experience... Were the people, but not the people, actually three to four people I remember. And it's those people that I remember and I miss the most. Looking back on our interaction with those people, I wouldn't even... Call it ministry, because our interaction with them was so common, so everyday, so normal. Some of our conversations had nothing to do with Jesus. We showed them the power of tomato soup. Did you know they don't have Campbell's tomato soup in Africa? We had it shipped directly. It's, it's terrible. We had, it, we had our own personal supply. But our interaction with them was so simple. And I think the first thing we need to embrace is a life on mission is simple. It's simple because we need to focus on simple because we are so good at complicating things. Like for example, as I was thinking and praying about this week, I'd have multiple conversations with my wife and she talked me off the bridge because I would think, I gotta. you all are coming here to hear from God, and I have to make this perfect because the fate of the world is resting on this sermon. <sighs> but then I remembered, I don't even remember what was preached last week, and you don't either. Matter of fact, last week's sermon, I, Pastor Otis talked about some things that kind of confirmed in my heart, like that I'm moving in the right direction. I had to go back to the broadcast and, and fast forward all the way through the, the, the worship, sorry guys, and the announcements, sorry Larry, um, but to get back because I forgot what happened seven days ago. So in a way, that kind of simplified it to me. I'm just, I'm just up here talking. You're not going to remember God's going to help you figure out what to do with the information. Um, So here we go. We're just going to have a conversation. Is that okay? We also complicate it because the whole idea of going to all the world, like, oh, where do I start? What nation do I begin with? What language do I learn? How do I know what's culturally acceptable? It's just complicated. So keep it simple. And if you've ever read the Gospels, then you understand Jesus kept it simple. Simple. Matter of fact, all the deep, not all the deep truths, but many of the deep truths that we know of from the Gospels didn't come from sermons. Didn't come from his time in the synagogues or the church. They came from common, simple, everyday interactions. John three sixteen, Not from a pulpit. Not in the Sermon on the Mount, but in a conversation with Nicodemus. The greatest two commandments. As an organizational leader, one of my jobs is to make sure that my team understands our values and, our, and our, our strategies. So I purposely communicate them to my team. So my team remembers. So I remember. So we're all on the same page. That makes sense because we're human. But when Jesus shared the greatest two commandments, he didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to tell everybody what's most important today. Because they need to know. That truth came because someone asked him a question. And he proceeded to answer that person's question by which we all benefit from the answer. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, that was at a funeral that he stopped. That part where he says, He who has no sin, let him cast the first stone. That was from a sermon that was interrupted. He didn't plan on saying that. He was interrupted. And he brings us this truth. And in John chapter 9, a man receives his sight simply because, and I love how John chapter 9 starts off. It says, Jesus was passing by, and a man called out, and he kept passing by. And he calls out again. So then Jesus stops and goes to him. I don't know if he planned that. Now we all understand that Jesus only did what he saw the Father do and say what he heard the Father saying. Now I don't know if Jesus woke up knowing he was gonna see a blind guy, knowing he was going to be asked this question. Scripture doesn't give us that. What Scripture does give us was Jesus' simple lifestyle. And I'll be honest, Jesus' model of ministry would stress me out. I would be one of the disciples saying, get, get these kids out of here. We have stuff to do. We're going to be in Capernaum on Tuesday, Jerusalem by Friday. And where is Jesus? Is he still talking to that guy? What is he doing? We have stuff to do. But Jesus, just he was always stopping, talking to people. And we see this over and over. Jesus kept it simple, and through that simple mission, he did great things. When we keep it simple, we too can do great things. One, one funny story that I remember from Swaziland was we had been there for, for a few months, and we had just gone through a couple weeks of like just a lot of, lot of hours, and um, I was actually inside um, taking a break, and my wife was outside, and this woman comes to the Comes to the house, and she says, excuse me, ma, but uh, my gogo has slaughtered some chickens, and would you help us bring them down? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I can help you. Where, where, where are you at? Oh, we're in Nganeni, which is a village on top of a mountain. No problem. We got an SUV. We can go up the mountain. The only problem is nobody on the village had an SUV, so there was not a road for an SUV. There was a, there was a trail. So my wife got in the car, grabbed my three-year-old, and went up the mountain with this woman. And she's hugging the mountain, looking over the side, trying, trying not to be afraid. And she's traveling up this mountain. Uh, you guys know what outhouses are? Well, she came across an outhouse. Now, these outhouses, because it was on the mountain, they didn't want to disrupt the mountain view, so there was no door. So as she's driving up the mountain, she's looking over the mountain, and she looks up, and there's an outhouse, and a guy in the outhouse, and they exchanged awkward glances. <laughs> he turned away, she turned away, and they, she kept driving, and she finally makes it up to the top of the mountain, and she gets there, at parks, and the girl gets out, goes, gets her go-go. Go-go is grandmother in, in, in uh, many countries in Africa, and... The so go-go comes out with this big bucket of chickens, and she puts it in the back of the SUV. Now, there was no Ziploc involved. There was no refrigeration involved. There were just chickens involved. And my wife asked, when, when did she kill these chickens? Yesterday. Okay. So when go-go went back for a second trip, my wife's like, okay, let me help her. So she gets out. Brings the chickens, bucket after bucket, after bucket after bucket. Turns out there's 99 dead chickens in my car. (laughs) Killed yesterday, yes. Um, Apparently there's a 24-hour window over there, the FDA approves it, I don't know. Um, (laughs) So all of a sudden my wife is like, all right, we're done, no more chickens? Okay, let's go. So, gets in the car, looks in the rearview mirror, not only sees the chickens, but she sees about a dozen eyes in the back of the car. Like, all these kids just piled into the car. There's like almost 12, 10 or 12 kids in the car. They're like, I mean, it's a, it seats nine. I don't know how we fit 99 chickens and 10 or 12 people. I, I don't know how it worked, but that's what was in the car when she left the village. And so she's like, all right, let's go. And so we're driving down the village and trying to keep it on the road. And then here comes the outhouse again. This time they exchange waves because they're friends now. And they just travel down to the local market where Gogo can now sell her chickens and make some money and do what she needs to do for the next few weeks. I didn't, we didn't plan that. But in the moment the need arose, we had the ability to meet that need, and so we did it. And it's just interesting to me that I remember that. There are many events where I preached the gospel under shade trees. I don't remember faces. I don't remember people. But I remember that moment. And one of those three people that we dearly miss, her name was Bongi. And Bongi, she was such a good friend. Like when we first landed in Swaziland, we got to meet Bongi. And, and Bongi taught us about so- Swazi culture and, and we taught her about American culture. And, and we became really good friends. Like she helped us way more than we ever helped her. And one day we realized that she was trying to go to school for to learn computers. Now, this computer school cost a whopping $30 that she didn't have. But this computer school would train her to do something everybody in here can do right now. Use Microsoft Word, Excel. Well I can't use Excel, but most of you probably can. Um, taught her basic computer skills. So we're like, you want to go that? She's like, ah I could if I yeah I, I want to work, this would help me get a job. And jobs are a big deal in Swaziland. And so we're like, here, we got 30 bucks, go. And that simple thing, she had a need. We had the ability. We saw the value. We saw a way to bless. And so we sent her to school. And to this day, she still works at that job that she got because of that simple computer training skill that she learned. We went to the mission field with plans and expectations, we didn't go blindly. But 99 chickens, computer school, that wasn't on our bucket list. It didn't make it. And now looking back, we can all agree, well, yeah, okay, yeah, that is ministry, but we didn't do it because we were missionaries. We did it because we cared, because we were close. And it's simple. It was easy. And so we did it. And all of a sudden, more fruit came From it than we could ever imagine. A life on mission is simple. And with our lives, we can tell a story. The story of our lives is not written by our words alone. Actually, the most memorable parts of our story are created by our actions how we loved, how we served, and how we honored those around us. And Jesus Jesus shows us this in John chapter 4 with the conversation he had with the woman at the well. John chapter 4 starts out, Jesus, tired from traveling, sat down. He was tired. He had done what he planned to do. Now he's tired, and then comes this woman. And he says, hey, can you give me a drink? And she says to him, you're how do you want to drink from me? You're you're Jewish. I'm Samaritans. You Jews don't associate with us Samaritans. You're on that side of the fence. I'm on this side of the fence. We have nothing in common. So what does Jesus do? He keeps it simple. And he talks about water and thirst. And he begins a conversation that perks an interest in her. And then he tells her, Go back and get your husband. We can have more conversations. And she says, I have no husband. And he said, actually, you're right. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. And that was it. Nothing more than that. Jesus wanted to eliminate the divide between them. And I just love this story because of how it ends for this woman. That simple conversation caused her to run back to her home village and say, you guys got to come check this out. I talked to somebody who knew everything about me. He understands me. He gets me. You guys got to come talk to him. Wouldn't it be amazing if our conversations generated that response? Man, you guys got to come talk to this person, man. They, they care. They care. They they know me and they're okay with me. And when we keep it simple, that's what we can do. Jesus had no agenda, no preconceived plan. It began as a simple and basic interaction. If he had no plan, why was he talking to her? I came across a, a sermon that talked about how husbands and wives should communicate communicating they the guy gave me this acrostic and um, it's the word wait so when you find yourself in a in a moment of conversation like like Jesus did you're going to ask yourself wait why am i talking in this conversation why, why do i need to what am i trying to say what's my goal what's my objective what's my agenda And if you ever find yourself thinking, well, the reason I want to talk is because I want to convince or persuade, you've complicated the Great Commission. By trying to convince or persuade, you're trying to pull someone into your world and convince them that you're right. The simplest thing you can do is to go into someone else's world and get to know them there and let them learn why they think what they think, love them for who they are, and look for ways to bless them. That's it. You don't, you don't, you don't need to convince, persuade, like, our world doesn't need that. Our world is doing fine with that. The world needs people to keep it simple. When we can go in that way, we will accomplish way more than we could ever imagine, and we'll actually love doing it. Now, when we keep our mission simple, it makes it easier to do the hard part of going, but I'm not saying it's always going to be easy, going, because there are some moments that get a little difficult. Um, Ben, can I... I can you help me? Yeah, just go, Come on, stand right there. Um, when I went over to Swaziland, I met Bongi, and her brother um, also worked in the town, and we got to know him. And they let us know about this need in in their village. And so we drove for two hours. Come on up, Ben. And um, and so we show up at the village, and this is Bongi's brother, and he says, "I'm going to show you around. I'm going to give you a tour." I'm like, all right, cool, let's, let's do that. And then something happened, something I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> he held my hand. I didn't know what to do with this. <laughs> I had seen this already, but I wasn't ready for this. When I first arrived in Swaziland, I saw this all over the place. Young men and women um, holding hands with each other. I'm like, what's the deal? What, what, what is this? And, and Bongi said, oh, that's, that's normal. That's, that's how we show friendship. That's how we show affection. It's, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm like, there is something wrong with this. <laughs> but in that moment just held his hand, and sometimes life on mission gets awkward, it just gets awkward, and here's the thing that I learned about God, you've been on the mission, field. I don't know if you know this or not, but whatever level of sacrifice you're ready to go for, like God, I, I'm willing to do this or that, the bar you set for God, God completely ignores it, He's like, oh, that's where you want to start? Well, here's where I'm going to start. And so as I'm embracing the awkward and getting ready to go on a a 45-minute tour of the village, Boney's brother takes it up a notch. And we walk. We walk around his village. He shows me the huts. He shows me the chickens and the chief's house, and he's just, he's just holding my hand. I'm just, I'm just there. I don't even know what was at the tour. I don't even know what the village looked like, because this is where I was stuck at. I was stuck here, and I mean, it's still awkward. I've been planning to hold a man's hand all week, and it's still incredibly awkward. So. Ben, thank you for keeping it awkward. Okay, please. I love you, man. Don't touch me. <laughs> when you live life on mission, you're going to get to that moment of awkwardness. Like, I, didn't, I don't want to be here. I didn't plan for this. If I knew this was happening, I wouldn't have done it. But when you live life on mission, you have to embrace that awkward. Now, awkward doesn't necessarily mean holding another man's hand. Okay, that, that was unique. But I'm not saying that will happen. I'm not saying it won't. But um, for us, awkward is a conversation in the, in the grocery store. A conversation about Jesus. It's easy to talk about Jesus here. I knew I was in a good company because all you guys like Jesus, right? Like, we're all good. I can talk about Jesus. You might even say amen, and we're all good. But it's different when we go out there. Or maybe you see somebody that you live near, and usually he's like, hey. But what if you said, hey, and held the fair? You just... Stayed there a second longer, maybe waiting for a conversation. When we can embrace the awkward instead of running from it, because awkward, we're not in control, we can't plan it out, we're not comfortable with it, and so anytime we get ourselves in that situation, we like to bail. Oh, we're busy. No, we we have, there's, there's a moment, a choice. We can embrace the awkward, and we have to resist the temptation to take back control. I could have, when he touched my hand, I could have said, no, no, no I don't do that. That's, that's, that's not how, I, I, I'm not used to that, I'm not comfortable with that, I have, I have, I have convictions, you know, I could, I could have gone there. But what message would that have communicated? It wouldn't have communicated the message I was trying to communicate, So instead, I just embraced the awkward. And because I did that, an inroad was made. And when you do that, an inroad is made. And if you ever find yourself in that awkward spot, I just want you to know you're in the right spot. I would say that a lot of awkwardness that comes from the unknown is actually thereby design. See, God gives us just enough to take one step at a time. And I think he does that because as humans, we, we're kind of funny creatures. I read this book to my kids every once in a while. If you give a mouse a cookie, because if you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want some milk to go with it. And if you give a mouse a milk, he's going to want a straw to go with it. You guys get the picture. If God gives us all the details, we're like, oh yeah, okay, I got that. And, and okay, now I know we're going over to this town, and in this town they, they have these things, so I'm gonna prepare for this. And we begin to go above and beyond where God is asking us to go. So God keeps us in the dark on purpose so that we learn to lean on Him. So if you ever find yourself saying, I don't know what I'm doing, you're in good standing. Because there's a guy by the name of Abraham. I don't know if you heard about him, but he's pretty big in the Christian faith, like the father of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about all the heroes of faith, it says this about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. Now, Abraham was was a big deal. He was very wealthy, had a big family, had a lot of livestock, and he lived in a small town, hometown. So when he packed up all his stuff, everybody noticed. As he's packing up all his stuff, they're like, where are you going? I don't know. (laughs) Well, how do you know when you get there? I don't know. Really? Well, what are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And if you ever ever say that, just remember, Abraham said that first. And look what God did with Abraham. Because he was willing to embrace that awkward moment of like, I really have no idea what I'm doing. And he stayed there long enough to see God do something. That's what life on mission looks like. It embraces the awkward Now, when we embrace the awkward, it causes us to, 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 if I could use this term, we're in church, to die a little. And a true life on mission is also sacrificial. Like there's going to be some level of sacrifice. Now, my final point is a life on mission is fruitful. And I would love to have brought that one up first. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 12. He says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In another conversation Jesus was having with his disciples, he said it this way in Luke 17. He says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life We'll preserve it. As Americans, we're taught to control, to plan, to own. But Jesus says, "Let go. Die. And when you do, He lives in us. Life on mission is sacrificial. There's going to come a moment where you're not going to have what it takes. And that's the goal. That's the plan. Many times, you will find yourself in a place where you don't know what to say, you're not the right, you don't feel like you're the right person for the job, and you have no idea how it's going to work out. That's where you need to be. Because when you're in that spot, you're completely dependent upon God. You're no longer leaning on your own strength. On the mission, a life on mission, uh, you, don't, you don't get to choose your giants, that you kill. I thought about David and Goliath, and when David woke up that morning, he didn't plan on fighting Goliath. He was delivering cheese to his brothers. He was just doing what dad told him to do. Yes, he was the next anointed king, but nobody else knew that. So what's he doing? I'm delivering cheese. So he walks to where this battlefield is, and then he sees what's going on around him. There's this Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. And he's like, what in the world is happening here? And he had a choice. Do I embrace the awkward and say something? Do I step into the ring and try to do something? And he said something to Goliath that I think was pretty powerful. David didn't plan on fighting Goliath. But when he, when he realized, listen, this, is, this guy is, is going too far and this should not be. So he, he steps into the ring with Goliath and he says to him, you come at me with spear and javelin. In other words, you come at me with years of military experience. You come at me with your skill and your strength and and your reputation because you got to know, everybody heard about Goliath. Nobody wanted to mess with him because he wasn't just the average guy. They had heard about him. So David says, you come at me in your strength. I come in his strength. A life on mission is sacrificial. You come to a place where it's not about you. And God does this by design because sometimes we lean too much on ourselves. And what David was saying was, I don't have the military strength. I don't have the experience. I don't have the body. I don't have the ability to do anything. But God does. And so I'm coming in the name of the Most High, God. And David just trusted that God was going to do something with that small rock in his hand. And when we resist laying down our lives, we resist God coming in and getting involved. Like I think about the outlets on on these walls. There's power in those outlets, but it's not coming out, thank God. That'd be dangerous. But that power is available as soon as you plug something into it. And as soon as you plug something in, that power comes out. And And that's what happens when we choose to lay down our life. We're like, God, I am not enough, so I'm leaning on you. That's when the power comes. We draw on God. One of the reasons we are so big on people serving in our, in our ministries, it's not because we need your help. If that was the, I mean, we do need your help, but that's not the only reason. If that was the only reason, we would figure something else out because you're busy. You guys have jobs, businesses, families, like you got enough on your plate but there's something about serving that you need. Because life at your home, life at your job, you have a level of control. Not that we don't need God's help in those areas, but predominantly we have the ability to push the eject button anytime we want on those. But when you place yourself in a situation where you can't just bail, you have to trust in God, then you tend to receive from God like next door in kids' church. I don't know what's going on sometimes. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I just know that God's going to show up. God gives us the strength to do it. Or maybe as a greeter, maybe your, 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 your coffee didn't work this morning, and, and you're standing at the door, and your job is to be nice, and you need Jesus to help you be nice. You place yourself in a situation where you need God. And in that point, God says, okay, here's what you need. And he supplies the strength. He supplies the grace. He supplies the power. But that only happens when we plug in. We put ourselves in an awkward, sacrificial position where we don't have what it takes, where we need God to intervene. For me, when we went over to Swaziland, I had some expectations. I had some plans. I had that level of sacrifice I was willing to do for God. And when we get there, it wasn't anything like that. We didn't get to do any of the stuff we thought we were gonna do because we showed up to say, hey, what do you need? Which is the right question, but it will mess up your plans. So my giant wasn't so much trying to figure out how to cure AIDS, or to to feed villages, my giant was paperwork. Because you see, in a nation um, with 47% HIV infection rate, mothers, fathers, uncles, aunts, they're passing away daily, leaving children orphaned and vulnerable. And those children are in trauma, dangerous situations. So you have a group of missionaries who love people, and they want to help, and they'll do whatever it takes to rescue children. That's what they did. The only problem is, when you take a child from a village and bring him into your location, that looks bad, right? So as an organization, we had to figure out, okay, how do, we do, how do we bring children in away from their homes legally? How do we do this right? So we're not arrested or branded as traffickers. So I got the job, my wife and I got the job of creating policy. I did not like that. I, I am not the office type person, but that's that's what was needed. And as the person who was was hearing from from the leaders of the organization, I was, all right, this is what we got to do, all right, this is how it's going to work, I became, my wife and I became middle management. Middle management's hard. Because middle management has people above you saying, and this is what we need. And we have people um, beneath us saying, we don't understand that, like, what? And we are the middle people. We are trying to communicate. And so that level of sacrifice that I was willing to do, I was willing to sleep on the ground, sleep in a mud hut. I was willing to preach the gospel. I was willing to stay in, stay on the trails for hours on end and do whatever it took. I became the guy who had to say no. Which if you don't know me very well, I have a very hard time with that. Like We had a whole conversation about the father-daughter dance. Like, moms, can you bring your kid? And like, So my role as the policy guy, I actually didn't make everybody happy. There were some really good people that were upset with what I did because I was enforcing a policy that I was submitted to leadership to do. It was just the course of the events, but in that process, I made people angry. That was so hard for me. I, had to, I, had, I needed Jesus in that moment. Because when you have a gift of mercy like, like I do, I just, I just, I just want to love everybody. Yes, everybody, yes. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. But in that moment, I had to say, no, we can't do that. No, this is, this is now wrong. We can't do the way we used to do it. And it's hard to really elaborate on all that, but it was just hard. It was really difficult for me. So in that season, I learned how to be tough. I learned how to communicate. I I didn't do it all great. There's a lot of things I could have done better, but I learned. I learned how to figure that out. I learned that God is more important. I learned what leadership looks like. I learned some skills that better me now. But it didn't come the way I wanted it to, and it seemed a lot like death. In that moment, there's a scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that shows us what happens when we live on mission and we are okay with the sacrificial lifestyle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, God brings you to the end of yourself, and we have to be okay with that. God brings us to a place where we have to lay down our strengths, our wants, our desires. And when we do that, he raises us up in new strength, in new life. And it's an ongoing process. I wish I could say there's a finish line in this life. But we just keep doing it. We just keep living life on mission, embracing the simple, embracing the awkward, and being okay with the sacrificial lifestyle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it elaborates. Paul says, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The whole purpose Of going, it's not just for the nations. It's for you because you're a nation. And God has a holistic plan to redeem the planet. And He needs us to be part of the going, to be part of that process. The final point, and we'll wrap up on this, is a life on mission is fruitful. Like, you'll never know how fruitful until you just plug in, until you embrace that awkward moment. Like, you too could carry 99 chickens down a mountain in a different way. But when we choose to live a life on mission, then God begins to have access to our schedules access to our heart, access to our fears, access to our desire for comfort. And when we give him access to that, he doesn't strip it all away. He refines it. He strengthens it. He puts it all in the right perspective so that we can live a life on mission and not only be fruitful, but enjoy the process. One of the great things about missionaries, is, is, that's what they've done. They've embraced these things. Like Dwayne Sipper, who's coming next Saturday. Their, their, their tagline is, is together saving one life at a time. That's his goal. It's not to end hunger. It's not to end homelessness. It's to save one life at a time. And Saturday, we're going to hear more about his heart and why he is doing such a great job. And it all began because he kept it simple. And he embraced some awkward moments, especially with, with government regulations and people. And he's laid a lot down. But if you've ever driven through Beverly Hills, you see the fruit of his life. And a good friend of mine, Jacob Schwarzweiger, is coming from Overland Missions, and he is going to share about what God is doing in Africa. Not the country of Africa, but the continent of Africa. When you hear Jacob's story and what God's doing through Overland Missions, it actually, it gives, it, it just produced so much hope in me that God truly can change the world. Like I know we all say we believe that, but to really know it, and all that comes from Jacob Going, going into villages, talking to chiefs, talking to people, and one conversation leads to another conversation, leads to another conversation, leads to God changing the face of Africa. Today, as we leave, I want to encourage you to focus on the going part of the Great Commission. Don't worry about the nation's. Don't worry about the discipling part. Just focus on the going part and look for simple ways to go. Remember to wait when you speak. Why am I talking? Embrace the awkward. Don't resist it. Don't run from it. Just hold that hand like you're enjoying it. And if you embrace it long enough, you'll experience the sacrifice that God has something great in store for.